Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. I made a commitment when I ran this time. I wasn't going to run again, and I mean that sincerely. I had no intention of running for president again. And uh, until I saw those folks coming out of the fields in Virginia carrying torches and carrying Nazi banners and literally singing the same vile rhyme that they used in Germany in, in the early 20s, or 30s, I should say. Wait a minute. Isn't that the same U.S. President Biden demonstrating all-out support for Ukraine and its neo-Nazi Azov Battalion military wing of the Ukrainian army in the current war, flooding the country with thousands of tons of U.S. manufactured lethal weapons, and with pretty much the biggest winner being the U.S. military-industrial complex weapons manufacturing corporations. But getting back to Biden and his proclaimed revulsion for all things Nazi, here he is back in 1999 demonstrating apparent Nazi zeal as a senator clamoring for the U.S. NATO military dismemberment of Yugoslavia, the better to exploit the destroyed country economically and absorb the NATO-carved fiefdoms deemed euphemistically new countries into NATO the better to do something quite similar surrounding Russia militarily today. That's not total victory. That's not the victory I want. That's not the victory John wants. I've been saying we should go into the, on the ground. We should announce there's going to be American casualties. We should go to Belgrade and we should have a Japanese-German-style occupation of that country. Meanwhile, taking a look at Biden's contradictory behavior, along with the corporate media like CNN, interviewing the Ukrainian neo-Nazis about the war there is the Gray Zone's political journalist and analyst for RT, Ben Norton. Joe Biden, who's been in Europe for talks with allies, has stated he only decided to run for the presidency after seeing rallies in Virginia where people carried torches and Nazi banners. I made a commitment when I ran this time. I wasn't going to run again, and I mean that sincerely. I had no intention of running for president again. And uh, until I saw those folks coming out of the fields in Virginia carrying torches and carrying Nazi banners and literally singing the same vile rhyme that they used in Germany in, in the early 20s, or 30s, I should say. Meanwhile, the head of Russia's state's Duma has warned of the danger of U.S. weapons ending up in the hands of Ukrainian far-right nationalist battalions. That says $800 million worth of U.S. military equipment has started to be sent to Ukraine. The Azov Battalion was named among those battalions by the Duma head, which the U.S. Congress prohibits helping. Meanwhile, some U.S. media outlets, including CNN, have used statements from the Azov unit in their coverage of the war. Independent journalist and geopolitics analyst Benjamin Norton believes that Joe Biden's criticism of domestic neo-Nazi movements doesn't necessarily extend to his foreign policy. You see once again a, a, another example in a long history of U.S. politicians saying something about their domestic politics and then doing something completely different in their foreign policy. This is very common in the United States. We see liberals and progressives claim to care about human rights and democracy, and then they violate those principles around the world because really their commitment to progressive values ends at U.S. borders. So we see that the, the Joe Biden, I mean, he was involved deeply in the war on Libya that destroyed the most prosperous country in Africa, bringing it open-air slave markets. He was involved in the war on Syria, which created one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes on earth. But, you know, Biden is basically continuing the same policy in his foreign policy. So domestically, he will criticize Nazis. But when the U.S. empire sees it's, you know, politically advantageous to support Nazis abroad, not just in Ukraine. I mean, I mentioned Syria. I mentioned Libya. We know that the United States has a history of arming and training these extremist far-right death squads that were linked to al-Qaeda in Syria. And what is the equivalent of that in Ukraine? The, the Jabhat al-Nusra of Syria in Ukraine would be the Azov regiment. And we have many pieces of evidence showing that the U.S. military has supported Azov. And in our information terrorism, 
went side to every story corporate media watch episode this week. In addition to what that media has to say about the war in Ukraine, what about everything they leave out? Canadian progressive journalist Eva Bartlett, one of the few reporters bothering to shed light on the conflict from the other-than-corporate-media-approved narrative from Ukraine, reports for RT from the People's Republic Donbass. Now, while the conflict has been raging in the Donbass region for the past eight years, Western journalists have been notable for their absence. But after one month of full-scale war in Ukraine, a number of reporters have since arrived in the Donetsk and Lugansk republics to cover the situation there. Our correspondent Roman Kosarev spoke to Canadian journalist Eva Bartlett, who explained the reluctance of many to cover the conflict from the ground before. Eve is just uh, one of uh, many foreign journalists who uh, arrived here in uh, Donetsk to uh, try and see what is actually happening here. So, uh, Eve, um, so obviously this is your first time here, I imagine. So you've been here several times? Uh, once before, in 2019. Uh, more, more time in Gorlevka and the areas north of there. I've been working here for about eight years and I very rarely saw any Western journalists here. Uh, why do you think that is and what is your uh, you know, opinion or impression of from coming here now in 2022? Uh, I think the reason that you saw very few Western journalists is because they were all reporting them from the Ukraine side, from in Kiev and elsewhere, or abroad, not even bothering to come to the region. Uh, the agenda of most corporate media journalists is to come here already with an idea in mind, take a few sound bites, get some shots, especially if there's destruction that fits their narrative very well, and never give any context. And I think just showing them without any sort of white helmets type theatrics and stage scenes, showing, uh, yes, showing this kind of scene, but then interviewing people to give context as to why it's like this. Uh, showing the people that we saw in the the, uh, the uh, town square who were there to receive aid, to hear from them what their lives were like. Was their life really wonderful and democratic and free under the Ukrainian forces, as we're being told in Western media? The problem is uh, that, you know, there's a media conglomerate that, that all have the same message. And the same message is Ukraine is, like I just said, democratic and bringing freedom to the people. Russia is bad and of course the people here that just want to be you know free of Ukrainian and Nazi rule and live their lives and speak their language which happens to be Russian you know the Ukrainians and the Western media will vilify them you're listening to Arts Express and next on the show I am no callow Christian no paunched prelate I I hope not for salvation, nor fear the day I'll die. In wantonness of appetite, in women, wine, and war, in fire and blood and rapine, in these my pleasures are. I love the smell of horse dung, the sight of corpse-strewn mud, the sound of steel on armor, the feel of clotting blood. The women I have ravished, the infants I have slain, the priests and nuns I've roasted, they haunt me not again. Priests talk of soul's salvation, and shining lights afar, but give me a harlot's laughter, and the battle flash of war. Priests talk of soul's damnation, the white hot pits of hell, I fear more wounds that fester and gape and rot and smell then here's to blood and blasphemy and here's to whores and drink in life you know you're living in death we only stink And that unusual anti-war poem about mercenaries was penned from an even stranger source, World War II U.S. General S. Patton. And Mercenaries Song leads to our next feature on the show, Mercenaries on Screen, and a new political thriller, The Contractor, starring Chris Pine, Kiefer Sutherland, and Ben Foster, and delving into the disturbing truths surrounding the escalating reliance on mercenaries 
also known as contractors euphemistically, in this new age of hybrid unconventional warfare employed under cover by both the U.S. government and corporations, and not unrelated as the contractor opens this week in the current war in progress said to number up to 20,000 of those mercenaries engaged in covert warfare for Ukraine. Quote, I was very fascinated and also scared what contractors would do to the world order once you start to use mercenaries to conduct war. That was Tariq Saleh, the director of The Contractor, our guest on this show, phoning in from Copenhagen. First, some scenes from The Contractor, then Tariq Saleh, who has also directed episodes of Ray Donovan and Westworld, first lending observations and insights as to what's going down in Europe regarding the ongoing war in Ukraine, from where he's located right now, Denmark. Come on, let's go. James, they're cleaning house. You're leaving the army with an honorable discharge, but you're losing your pension and health care. We gave them our minds, our bodies, and our spirit. And they chewed us up and spit us out. I just want to check in with y'all on your past due payment. Message deleted. What you did in the uniform? Sledgehammer. Our thing, scalpel work. We operate in a deep black OGA offshoot with direct presidential authority. Bank some decent cash, put a down payment on the house. It's not dangerous. Now I know you're lying. Baby, I need to take care of my family. So what do you say, you down for the cause? Yeah. Salim Mohammed Mosin. Study pathogenic influenza viruses in humans. We all know what one motivated radical can do. So let's cowboy up, get it done, and get home to our families. You don't understand what you're doing. I'm trying to save lives. This is only about money. What did we do, Mike? I've got an extraction team around BMW X1. Comply. I'll do that when you confirm who you're working for. You work for me. You gotta trust me. I am trying to help you. Oh, we're working for the president. Or corporation. Get in the car! They train us to run their errands. Kill their enemies and kill each other. It's easy to kill, but it's much harder to survive. Home's a memory. He's gonna come after you with everything he's got. I'm going home. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. I mean, I'm or, or here. I'm I'm actually in Copenhagen. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm pretty far away. First, I wanted to ask you, since you're over there in Europe, what are your observations or impressions about what's going on over there in Europe with Ukraine and the war, and especially with your film and all these foreign mercenaries in Ukraine? reportedly up to 20,000 of them, including religious terrorists from the Middle East. Yeah, what I observe is that people are really scared. And uh, people in Europe uh, are really in fear of that this is the start of the of a third world war. Mm. I don't think it will be that, uh, because I'm an optimist. I just warn you and say I'm an optimist. But I think that the the, total, the the human suffering that is going on. And I will say that it's actually on both sides. Both uh, on the Ukrainian side and Russian side, there is huge losses, you know. And a lot of mothers and fathers waking up with their sons and daughters dead. And that can never be, you know, it can never be reversed. And um, for what? For power and for money. And I think that that and and I think that that's just I mean we haven't learned anything. I, I it's just very sad. But I don't think that uh, Europe and the U.S. Uh, is totally innocent in this. I think that there has been a sort of um, a build up to this. And I 
I would just will say that with, with the people that, that always pay the price are the civilians and the soldiers. It's never the people up in the, in the top. And I think that what the contractor is saying is that, that the real suffering is always the man or woman that is sent over to fight the war yeah. for, for us. That why it's so important to, to hold our, our, our politicians accountable when they want to start the war. Now, you've said that, quote, my job as a director is to tell the world not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. What would you say it is about those feelings that got you on board to direct the contractor? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think that uh, a lot of times uh, storytellers, um, you know, we are, of course, you know, always, you know, we want to entertain and we want to make people listen to us. Uh, but if in doing that, we start to lie, I think it defeats the purpose. I think that then, you know, if we tell the world that one plus one is two, the world already knows that, you know, we're basically wasting people's time. So I think that when one plus one is three, that's when it's really interesting. That's when we as storytellers come in. Um, and uh, so, for example, I think that uh, human beings are not always rational. Uh, I think we all know that as, as human beings, that we a lot of times take decisions that we don't fully know why we did it. And, and you know, sometimes we regret taking those decisions. And I think that that's where, where I come in. And I also see my job as standing on the side of humanity in a way. And is there something personal for you that led you into the contractor? Not that you've ever been a contractor, but anything political you've experienced or observed in your life? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, um, so 2000 and 2005, I directed a documentary called Gitmo, uh, The New Rules of War, which was about Guantanamo. And um, we were shooting that film. We started shooting 2002. Um, and that was when, you know, the Iraq war, the second sort of the second, uh, what, what, the, the second part of the Iraq war when, you know, the invasion. In filming that documentary, that was the first time I understood that contractors were being used. Uh, it was the second largest force after the Americans. In, in Iraq was contractors. And it sort of presented a new reality um, that was problematic because, even, I mean, it, it sounds uh, maybe cynical, but even in war, it's important to follow rules. The rules of engagement is sort of there to protect soldiers and civilians. But if you use private contractors, they do not answer to, for example, the Geneva Convention, and that created a lot of problems. So I was, I was interviewing a lot of contractors when that was a new phenomenon, sort of. I was trying to interview, uh, you know, Eric Prince at the time, but he declined. And I was, you know, so I was very sort of already then uh, fascinated and also scared, actually, what it would do to sort of the world order. Um, and what, what would happen to the order of the world? <laughs> because once you start to use mercenaries to, to conduct war, normal rules and laws doesn't apply. Uh, so when I got the, the, the script for the contractor, I, I right away knew that, oh my God, this, this is very real. This story is very, very real. This, this exists. And you've also said that the contractor deals with larger issues like the moral corruption of the soul. What can you say about that? And what are your thoughts about contractors in the real world upon which this film is based and how we see them increasingly fighting unconventional hybrid conflicts, not necessarily for governments, but instead for the rich and powerful or corporations? Yeah, I think that 
James, uh, that is played by Chris Pine, he's a believer in the sense that he is uh, he's the man who actually believed in the idea of fighting the good fight. And a lot of soldiers I spoke to and a lot of veterans, they have that story that they, you know, a lot of them, uh, especially in these last wars, have, you know, they... Uh, got drafted right after 9-11 and they believed that they were going to protect the free world about, uh, you know, against this evil sort of uh, ideology that Al-Qaeda was presenting, uh, you know, this threat uh, to freedom. And um, then they realized too late that there were other agendas uh, at play. And in a way, I think that James realizes that what he has been fighting for is not what he has been told that he's fighting for. And you also said that life is too short to make films that don't matter. Please elaborate. Well, for me, you know, film is my religion. Why? I mean, you asked me first, like, what drew me to film? I would like to say that, you know, when, when I grew up, film sort of saved my life, you know, um, uh, it was sort of a way to to travel. When you don't have money, you could travel anywhere with just buying a ticket to a film. And you could be someone else for two hours, which I think is amazing. So to be able to make films is actually, uh, I think, uh, uh, it's an honor to, to work with films. And you better have something to say, I think. If you take two hours of a human being's precious time, I think you should tell them something important. And any last word on the contractor? Yeah, so I, what we wanted to do was we wanted to tell uh, a story about a soldier who ultimately wants to go home to his family and how difficult that is to come home. No, what I what I think I want to say is that, you know, when we train hundreds of thousands or even millions of young people in in uh, in learning how to kill. And then when nations are ready with them, when we don't we, we don't care about them, when they come home, you know, what are they going to do? You know, they're going to find jobs and there are going to be people willing to pay or their skills. Those people might not be good people. And I think that that's a discussion, you know, we as a society has to have, you know? What do we, how do we compensate people when they come home? How do we deal with veterans? You know, because we can't just expect them to come home to nothing. And the contractor is in release this week. And coming up next on Arts Express, In our Poetry Corner, and with Women's History Month drawing to a close, here is the first Poet Laureate of Flint, Michigan, Samaj Brown, performing two of her poems, Black Dandelion and Where Am I From? inaugural poet laureate for Flint, Michigan, and I will be reading my poem, Black Dandelion. Age four, witnessed my first mow-down, twinkling ground stars cut by murderous lawnmower, feeling the blade. I curl like a snail in grief. Twelve Full moons folded into spring. Perennial promises prevailed. Bees, bees celebrated return of the dandelion. In a skirt of twirling yellow bliss, flowering bouffant mirrored my spiky little afro. Jagged edge lion's tooth leaves 
pay tribute to my snaggletooth smile. Me and my freedom fighting flowers frolicked to survive the scissoring, updigging, poisoning. Warning signs hovered like low-hanging clouds. No blooming allowed. Blossoms will be prosecuted. These brave little plants grew just for me. Grew in spite of a society that favored a monochromatic landscape. 1965. Mr. Brother Malcolm X was assassinated. Big word for a pre-kindergartner. I was convinced he must have been a dandelion. Reverend King, too, and the Johnson boy who lived one turn down the street that way. The Johnson boy was shocked by the police for growing in a monochromatic landscape. Training wheels off. Bike riding across insecure cement. I pedaled the bumpy path, waving solidarity to each surviving sunburst noggin, each fulfilling the promise to ornament lawns and flourish souls with lemon drop hope. Dandelions bear art of endurance and escape. Transforming into pearl puffs, floating with ephemeral intention, carrying the spirit of the weed. Thirteen Full moons faded to July. I am a proud weed. Yes. I declared that shocking proclamation standing in the pulpit on Youth Sunday, Vernon Chapel AME Church. I added to my speech on David and Goliath my impromptu improvisation of dandelion dogma. We are black dandelions, I said, who will never be destroyed. We grow the power of goodness for generations into the future. I yet remember. <laughs> I yet remember the hat-framed faces of the pious, the amused, and, and the mortified. Where Am I From? by Samaj Brown, Flint, Michigan's first poet laureate. Where am I from? I am from the blood of fire river, where the strike of friction against rock of flint smokes tongues of resistance, lead burning brains and bodies of the resilient beautiful. I am flint. Midwest bioregion, reconfiguring the world. Meet me, meet me where the water shed into bay of being, fed by underground railroad tributaries escaping river killers. I travel the coast, decomposing as a beached whale, a homeless polar bear traumatized by the color blue passes. Am I drizzling in my grandmother's nightmare? Where am I from? I am from the conflagration, incinerating the revolving rotisserie globe. They have savaged our bodies and our land.
I burn for you, our Brianna. Oh, our Brianna. Radiating volcanic social convulsions of African blazes. I am from a regurgitating country trying to grow a conscience in a petri dish, wheezing in the chemical crucible of casual killings as the tide of plastic rushes the shore, flooding our veins. Where am I from? Here? Hear the eulogy of rainforest choirs, homilies rupturing in the throat of declining orchids. Here, here, I am from this earth, is my body, my lungs, a species, a sacrament, dissimilar to any ever tasted the milk of, newer forever more than eternity, the breath of, we magma, our authority, lava, our power, where we, the humble crawlers of light, shout the earth forward, biodiversity marching her forward, stampeding the earth forward, voting her forward, imagining, yes, imagining our futures forward, forward, forward. Thank you. Now on Arts Express, continuing our corporate media censorship watch among the multitude of alternative media and progressive news reports that continue to be disappeared online by big tech is the recent call to British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace as those Russian pranksters Vladimir Kuznetsov and Alexei Staliarov, alias Vovan and Lexis, phone up UK Defense Secretary Ben Wallace with one of them, Lexis, impersonating, well, Ukrainian Prime Minister Denis Shmael, and during which Wallace spilled all sorts of state secrets, some so sensitive that the duo did not include them and covered up here during the disseminated conversation, which YouTube has blocked, and which included a nuclear arms program to be launched by NATO for Ukraine. First, some background, then RT's interview with Lexis, before the duo's account was also disappeared online. Well, over in the UK, the Defence Secretary has demanded YouTube take down a video of himself being caught out by a hoax call. Ben Wallace was filmed by two Russian pranksters, one of whom posed as Ukraine's Prime Minister. A wide range of topics were discussed, including Ukraine potentially launching a nuclear arms programme. Part of that video was censored by the pranksters themselves, as they say Ben Wallace gave away information that would compromise Britain's national security. In response, Downing Street says the entire video is a risk to the country's security, and it believes Russian state actors were responsible for the prank. That claim was directly rejected by the comedy duo. Information revealed by the Defence Secretary included plans to move UK ships closer to Ukraine. We spoke to one of those pranksters, Alexei Stolyarov, who's also known as Lexus, and he's just concerned that such a high-ranking person can be contacted so easily. Some of my friends from, from the UK, they thought that he could not be a uh, person who is responsible for the national security of the, such a great country like uh, the UK and this, uh, the country with the nuclear weapon, and he's a responsible person for all uh, all these areas. So, and it, if it's easy to reach him by just uh, private persons, so just you could you could imagine what could happen if uh, some persons from intelligence try to uh, reach him and to get uh, all necessary information. So I think I could only advise to be careful in such moments.
in uh, their letter they uh, mentioned that uh, this is kind of propaganda, kind of Russian propaganda, but we did not edit uh, his uh, words, his speech. So if it's uh, a propaganda, so then it's uh, uh, propaganda of uh, Secretary Wallace. It's his words. We did not change anything. And now here's that complete conversation with UK Defense Minister Ben Wallace from Poland. Yes, sure. We will just. We are on the line. Do you hear me? Thank you. Yeah, I can hear you loud uh, and clear. If yeah. you just bear with us while the defence secretary joins. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, we we will be. We will switch on our camera when we will be. When we will see. Understood. No problem. Thank mm-hmm. you. Hello. Hello. How are you there? I'm fine. I'm in Poland. Oh, okay. Yes, I know. Uh, so, dear Secretary, um, How are you? I'm good. Uh, first of all, thank you for your support of our country in the fight against Russian aggression. So, President Zelensky delegated me to have this conversation with you, and I am uh, very grateful to your country. What's uh, what you are doing, because some Western countries, despite promises, abandoned us in a difficult moment, but the UK supported us, and the supply of weapons from you and NATO is uh, vital for Ukraine. It's very important. Thank you very much. Look, um, it's my pleasure. I've visited you five times uh, over the last five years, so um, I'm uh, determined to keep more and more supplies coming to you. Uh, well, I understand that you are probably fed up with this question, but I would like to ask how else can the UK support us in this difficult time for you? As well, you th- uh, I can't say where I've been, but I've just been to look at more of our anti-air capacity to give you and making sure that we are getting it into the country as quickly as possible. Oh, I mean... Um, mm. Of course, we are currently discussing the idea of a defensive alliance with a country with a nuclear weapon, and it would be great if the UK became such a country. So how do you feel about the idea of uh, union between our countries? And, for example, it was wonderful to open official British training centers in our country. Well, look, I, th- I think we are very keen to support you in any negotiations, and I know... My understanding is President Zelensky is quite keen uh, to see the United Kingdom uh, alongside Ukraine in these negotiations uh, because of the experience that we every, every well, we didn't have, but the bad experience of the Minsk agreement where just France and Germany were there. And I think there is a desire for the UK and the US. And I think all of those subjects, including a security alliance, I think is something to discuss uh, with you on those negotiations? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, um, uh, the new union, so you know that Russia demands to uh, to leave ideas of uh, NATO uh, joining. Yeah. So what's, what do you think? I, I, I think um, the freedom to choose is a very important freedom for Ukraine. And uh, you know, Russia's other demands of Crimea and Donbass uh, to abandon all those, uh, which I don't think Ukraine will. But if, if Russia was to be successful, then, uh, you know, the question is, you know, Russia is still a war criminal with uh, sanctions around its neck and deserves to keep them there. So um, I, th- I think look, we, we will stand by Ukraine in everything we can do. Um, when it comes to discussions about security guarantees, I think we need to support you in what is the other parts of the agreement as well. Um, you know, that uh, what, what are the parts of the agreement that Russia will demand and, and whether you think they are appropriate or whether they're acceptable? Because I don't think Russia should be able to demand anything other than going home. Yeah, of course, I know that. I'm, I'm talking about the um, uh, situation, of course, one of the main issues that we are concerned about now 
is uh, the open sky over Ukraine. So uh, the question is, is it uh, possible to somehow make the NATO ban on uh, non-interference uh, and do something to close the sky for Russian aircraft? I know that many, many times you were questioned about this, but it's really, really important now. And President Zelensky says about it yesterday in uh, Congress. So look, I am... Um Two things. I've just been looking at our new anti-air missile that we're sending you, which is better than Stinger. It'll work at night. It's a very, very fast missile, and it will help close the skies to Russian aircraft. Uh, yes. I think what I would like to understand from Ukraine is, given that Russia has overwhelming amounts of artillery and missiles, and one of the few areas that Ukraine has a military ability to hit those missiles and artillery is using air and biactor twos. How would you deal with not being able to fly? Because a no-fly zone would be for both sides. Mr. Prime Minister, could I ask you a question, if I may? Um, yes. Uh, your, your constitution currently has the application or the NATO uh, obligation in it. Uh, I understand if, if President Zelensky... Uh, and I heard what he said about neutrality and or, or not joining NATO. Do you think the Ukrainian people would support that? I really don't know now, because you know the situation after what Putin has done, it's pretty yeah. hard for us to change the constitution. So we have to see what we, are, we can do. Maybe it would be international agreement anyway uh, but it's a pretty pretty hard situation so we have to see and of course it should be with our uh, yeah. with our allies and also the question i would like to um, the question i would like to ask uh, could british warships uh, come to black sea and uh, uh, help us i mean uh, such uh, regions uh, like odessa yeah. Uh, r right now, you mean, in, in, in the war? Yes, I mean right now. So, look, um, we, we are, as you know, we are not going to directly attack Russian ships or Russian airplanes. That is, that, that's not, not, not at this stage will, will we be doing this. Uh, and as you know, that is, you know, that's a difficult thing for me to say. Uh, we will help you with... A whole range of weapons that can deal with those, including potentially in the Black Sea. Uh, and if you know, remember last year we took HMS Defender past Crimea and, and uh, the Russians behaved uh, uh, illegally then. Um, so look, we, we, I am considering more and more weapon systems to help in it. Uh, we, will, we will go into the Black Sea. I think we're due to go soon in the Black Sea. Uh, how close we go to uh, Ukrainian waters uh, where the Russians currently have a blockade, I think we will be open to discussions about looking at that. I, I think the whole question, Mr. Prime Minister, including the security dialogue or security guarantee, we are happy to look at all of them with you. So we're not going to rule anything out. I think what would be really good is to be able to discuss these with you. Uh, so Because my... You know, I have to speak to my prime minister and to be able to discuss it with you uh, in Mr. President Zelensky's team. And we'd be very keen to find a way for one of our diplomats to, to engage with you uh, on a permanent basis in the next few days and weeks. No, uh, I mean, maybe on next stage we can uh, fight together. Yeah. Oh, look, on, on the next stage, uh, I hope we would always be keen to be with you in Ukraine. But, I mean, yes, if, if, the, if really a peace important. deal is there, we're not going... If you make a deal that, that is, is right for you in Ukraine and what you are happy to deliver, Britain will look at all options to help you, including being Thank in Ukraine. You. Right? I, I, yes. I have troops in Poland. I have troops in Estonia. I have troops uh, in Lithuania. Uh, I am happy to be with you in Ukraine in obviously subject to, you know, if you remember, we were having, we had 100 troops in orbital training team. We've had that since 2015. 
but we can look at all sorts of options. Yeah, thanks very much. It's uh, really important. And why I also would like to uh, request provide uh, never NLAW anti-tank weapons uh, since those delivered earlier um, yeah. often fail. So that was a problem for our country. Our, ours have, I don't think ours have failed. I've got the details of ours. We've given you over 4,000. We've got more coming. Yeah, right. We're, ru we're running out of our own. But I, I speak to uh, Minister Reznikov or text him every day. So uh, yeah. we, we, we have a problem in bureaucracy at the moment, which is we had two routes into the country. Uh, and we, the, the Ukrainian general staff chose to push everything through one route. That has slowed down supplies uh, into a part of your army that needs them. Right. Uh, yeah, I would like to ask uh, you for my uh, human opinion. How do you think uh, other states, what do they think about our uh, anti-NATO status? So what uh, do you think? What about your colleague from the US? What do he really thinks about, uh, about our status? So I know that it's pretty uh, difficult to... Um, to uh, to not try to uh, join NATO. But... So look, look, look. Um, I don't think we have any of our colleagues. Uh, you know, of course we're sad, and you know, Britain was one of those countries that wanted you to join NATO, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, there are 30 nations in NATO, and that is part of the problem. It's not easy to get every single one to say yes. Uh, and we have always wanted you to join NATO, which is why our training teams were there to help you over the last five years try and get to the right stage. And you were you were there. So um, that is you know, a deep sense of regret. Uh, what we don't want to do is see you bullied into making decisions like recognizing Crimea as Russia. So so I, th I think, you know, we, we deeply feel that you should be free away from this Russian Nazi and bully. We would like to continue the nuclear program in order to protect ourselves from Russia. It's uh, a difficult question, but we think to start it. Okay. But do you think, I mean, I think more than being neutral, Russia would really hate that. For sure, we are we are know we we know this, of course. But this is yeah. one of the question that we are in, interested. But if you could help yeah. us in this uh, regard, it would be really really important. Okay. Well, look, I, 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 Mr. Prime Minister, on all those bigger questions, I think those are questions that I need to speak to my Prime Minister. The, the principle is we will support Ukraine as our friend in the choices you make. Whether you want to be part of NATO or you don't want to be part of NATO, whether you want to explore new weapons, etc., that is all a matter for you to decide and for the West to, to, in a sense, stand by you. And on things like the security guarantees, we would be very happy to look at that with you uh, in whatever way we can. I understand the need for it. Um, and we would like to be close to you in these negotiations for, for really two reasons. So we can provide our intelligence to you as much as possible to let you know what we think the Russians are thinking uh, and to uh, just allow you all to be able to, to, to explore with us what you think is feasible. Right. Um, dear Secretary, in the proposals for a peace treaty, Russia wants us to reduce the army as well as the number of weapons. In this case, can we count on uh, secret supplies of weapons for us, for example, to store it in Poland? So, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I understand what you're asking. Right, yes. Or maybe you could filter uh, some volunteers that are coming to 
our country to fight against Russians. You know, many volunteers. And there are some uh, more frequent cases where the, when the British uh, discredit our country in the eyes of the world. For example, Jake Pride from Cardiff recently gave an interview that we, are we have terrible conditions and we are deceiving everyone and he managed to convince 20 more volunteers to refuse the contracts. This information undermines the morale of Ukrainians. Yeah, look, I, I'm not responsible for idiots that come and give interviews on media, I'm afraid. I can try and stop them, but, um, you know, if people, pe you know, uh, uh, there are also no doubt people who have come to help you, uh, uh, who are perfectly happy to, to stand and fight alongside you. So, look, I, if some idiot from Cardiff decides to give an interview, he's probably an idiot. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's quite hard for me to, in our free press, I can't control those people, but um, we, we're trying to discourage people coming who what we would call our Walter Mitties, you know, people who are thrill seekers uh, who haven't really been in the army, probably failures rather than the army, uh, but we'll see what we can do. Any, any proposals you talk about are uh, something that the UK would discuss. On your acquisition of a nuclear, or I mean, you think you want to explore a nuclear weapon? I think I would just be very careful about all of that. Uh, you know, I think we are a, a signature to the Nuclear Proliferation Act. Uh, we can't be seen to uh, uh, to, to be doing that. Uh, you know, that is that is an entirely uh, different issue. So I think you have to be very careful with that. I can say Slava Ukraini. Slava Ukraini, and to say to our heroes, Vavan and Lexus, it's our Ukrainian heroes, they bombed airplanes from uh, Russian side. Vavan and Lexus. Slava Ukraini, Mr. Prime Minister. Slava Vavan and Lexus. Slava Vavan and Lexus. Okay, hang on, I've just, I, Slava Ukraini, thank you for talking to me. Thank you, thank you very much. Bye. And Bye. Bye. Yes. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.